Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 83. Martin Cawley is a popular and influential figure in Scotland's third sector. From the early stages of his career in the NHS and then at the family support charity Quarriers, he's always been excited by innovation, committed to inclusion and driven by desire to help people realise their full potential. He is now bringing his experience to Beats and Cancer Care, having successfully steered the Glasgow-based charity through the pandemic crisis. And Martin's also a former CEO of Turning Point Scotland and was Scotland's director for the National Lottery Community Fund. I enjoyed catching up with him earlier this month. Martin Cawley, great to have you on the, on the podcast. Where do we find you this morning? I'm at home, actually, um, working from home today. Actually, I've been working from home. Um, for a wee while just now, not just because of COVID, you know, that's, that's changed all our behaviour in terms of our, our work life. Um, but we're getting some work done in the office just now, so it's an absolute mess in there. So it's much more conducive for a good day's work sitting here than it would be in the office getting in the way. Where is home? Uh, I live in Kirkintilloch. Um, so born and bred in Kirkintilloch, lived here all my life. Um, so yeah, very familiar with the place. Well, let's go back then to uh, the beginning of the story in Kirkintilloch. So what was family life like growing up for you, Martin? And what sort of traits do you think you inherited from your parents? And also, by the time you left school, what kind of career ambitions did you have at that point? Lots of questions there. Indeed. Every day, I think I'm getting more like my dad. I'm turning into my dad. I think we all feel that, don't we? (laughs) The older you get, the more you see yourself like your father. Um, no, family life was great. I've, I come from a big family. I've got um, three sisters and two brothers. Um, we all have a couple of kids each, and, and some of them have, have children now. So my and dad, I think I've got something like 13 great-grandchildren, 13 grandchildren, and some almost the equivalent great-grandchildren. So family life was very much um, together. We were always together. As you know, we'd go to my and dad's, even when we sort of left the house, we'd always go there for Sunday dinner and... Christmas, family events, birthdays, so it was all very... In fact, here's a story. Uh, with those three sisters and two brothers, and we've all got two kids each, and all their children, there's only one, Daniel, my nephew Daniel, who's in Australia, but we all probably live within about a huh? six or seven mile radius in my parents' house. Wow. So, <laughs> I know, so we still all see each other. Um, uh, it's a very close family, yeah, it's good. In terms of career stuff, oh my... Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do on leaving school. I mean, I sort of stumbled into, didn't stumble, that's unfair, but during my teenage years, I did a lot of voluntary work in a local learning disability hospital, Reynolds Castle Hospital, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, So in leaving school, uh, I sort of applied for nurse training um, in this hospital and was successful in that. So I I just sort of found my career in, in that basis, but... I loved working with people with learning disabilities. Um, did that for the best part of my career, actually, and, and all my career moves. I always supported people um, who experienced disadvantage or discrimination of some kind. Um, and, but not nursing. Nursing, well, whilst nursing provided that fundamental background, professional sort of um, uh, work life, I, I've, I felt that the idea of services for people transcends a whole range of different things. So I was very keen in, in pursuing a career working in a community setting, community development setting, developing new and innovative approaches for people. 
So, so I was in the NHS for about 11 years and, and then I decided to leave and I joined the voluntary sector after that. So in those early years, Martin, were there any experiences or influences that shaped your future career path? Tons, yeah. I, 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 when I left the NHS, I, I started working for a, one of Scotland's largest indigenous charities, charity called Quarriers. Um, and we to lead Quarriers through quite a significant period of change, process of change. Um, but that was really exciting. It was really exciting because there were new funding streams available. Um, from a government policy perspective, there was an emphasis in, in much more focus on community care, service delivery than in hospital care. So a lot of these larger hospitals were closing down. Um, there was a lot of transfer of resource from the NHS into local authorities. So it very much gave third sector agencies a, 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 a brilliant set of ingredients, if you like, to develop new innovative work. And, and that's what we did. And I loved it. And I sort of found a, a happy home in terms of the value base that, that I, I recognised that she, I shared that um, uh, fitted very much with my own value base um, about supporting people become more self-determined um, promoting their, um, their independence um, promoting their inclusion um, in societal life and, and we developed a whole range of new services which just actually unleashed people's potential you know it was really exciting times Your first chief executive role was then at Turning Point Scotland so how did that opportunity arise and what were the main challenges that you encountered in the role? Well, I'd been, I'd been a director of services for, for couriers for about for a long time. I'd worked there for 17 years, so really taking the organisation through a significant period of change. And as I was saying, the conditions were such where that there was lots of opportunity to develop new services. And the couriers were about 120 years old as an organisation, you know, so very long established. But joining Turning Point Scotland, they were only about 20 years old, so still quite young in a developing culture, and very much punching above their weight in terms of the the real creative, innovative services that, that they were able to deliver. Um, and when that post, I knew the organisation, I knew the organisation well because it was part of my own network, so when the incumbent chief exec left, I, I threw my hat in the ring and fortunately I was successful. Um, so I stayed there for eight years, but again, brilliant, brilliant organisation. Loved it, uh, loved every minute of it. Um, again, lots of potential for development, but probably around the end of that time was was when the recession started hitting. Um, there was a financial crisis. There was lots of pressure on public spending. Um, a lot of focus on local authority um, contractual relationships, which where there's a lot of savings required. Um, so your budgets were becoming much more difficult and tight to achieve. So on one hand, you were really pushing for high-quality service delivery, but on the other hand, you were trying to do that, you know, in, in a, an environment where resources were getting even increasingly tighter. Um, but the services were amazing. People I worked with were amazing. And then you then um, moved on to become director of the National Lottery Community Fund. So tell us about your time there, Martin. What, what did you, you most like about the position? What was most yeah. challenging about it? I, I guess throughout my career, I, I was always interested in community development, um, thinking about how organisations worked, um, thinking about the importance of the right cultural identity within the organisations, um, making sure that you could share and collaborate in 
um, promote that type of learning across a, a you know a wider a wider network. And um, so she always interested in collaboration as an approach. Um, and the National Lottery Community Fund is a very privileged sort of position. You know, across the whole of the UK, they're probably given making grants to the value of about five hundred and sixty million pounds annually. Um, in Scotland, our budget was about eighty million pounds. Um, we did some other work in partnership with the Scottish Government um, and the European Structural Fund, which took that budget up a bit. But here was an opportunity where you could fund a whole range of exciting community projects, um, very much driven by you know third sector um, um, and, a, and a diverse range of projects. You know from um, community activist sort of type activity and, and local communities to to build up their own capacity for um, for self-determination right through to health and social care services or land reform work or capital projects. So, you know, so I learned a great deal in, in my few years there. Um, but I did miss being closer to the action, I have to say. It's one thing when you're funding someone else to deliver something wonderful. Um, but when you're a wee bit step removed, you, you sort of miss that magic yourself, you know. So I, I did... I, I, I have to say I missed that, and that was one of the reasons why why I moved on from that role. But again, great time there. Um, it was a UK wide organisation, so we got lots of access to um, increased uh, relationships, networks, learning from colleagues across the UK. Contributed to the strategic development of the charity strate- uh, the organisation strategic plan. Um, again, you go through periods of change. You know, I guess that's a constant in life, isn't it? Um, but the the big lottery fund, National Lottery Community Fund, had initiated a, a strategy called um, putting people in the lead, basically. So that was very much about trying to build resources on a community basis from the bottom up. Um, and as you can imagine, when you provide a bit of funding for that, then the fruits of people's labour can produce amazing things. And so... Next step was where you are now, which is uh, Beats and Cancer Charity. So there was this attraction to get getting back to being closer to the the action, as as you put it. What what else appealed to you about the job? And could you tell us a bit about the organisation, what it what it sets out to achieve? Yeah, um, yeah. I've always had a, um, an empathy with cancer as as a, an illness. Um, you know, like most people, um, cancer affects all of our lives. Uh, you know, there are 30, there'll be about 35,000 people diagnosed with cancer in Scotland over the course of this year. Um, and if you can imagine the extended families and friends, networks and colleagues of those people, you know, it affects millions of people. In fact, probably one in two, one in three people will be affected by cancer at some point in their life. Um, and the Beats and Cancer Charity is such a brilliant brand. It's such a really strong brand. It's got a great connection with the people that support it and the people that use its services. Um, so when, when that role became available, it hit the spot in, in two ways for me. One was that I, it was an opportunity to get back to deliver really great services for people um, in a very person-centred way. And the other was that um, it was with an organisation that gets such a brilliant culture and such a strong brand. Um, and, of course, it's delivering intimate support for people who experience in their own cancer journey, their own pathway through the, the cancer story. Um, as soon as you're diagnosed with cancer, your, your whole life changes immediately. Um, 
you start worrying about your mortality, you start worrying about your family, your relationships, your friends, your income, do you know, everything, everything. Um, and and to provide some element of support for people to help them through that pathway and that journey um, is actually a bit of a privilege. Um, and the reasons get a really strong reputation in the west of Scotland. It's probably, you know, the biggest cancer centre in, in Scotland. Um, it's got a brilliant reputation in itself. Um, but the, the true essence of that for me is is that you know what it feels like. Do you know every year we we run you know major events where we've got hundreds and thousands of people participating, mass participatory events, dinners, walks, runs, cycles, you know all everything that we fundraise for. Um, and it's great when you see everyone with their yellow t-shirts on. Yellows are a colour. Um, and people write messages on their t-shirts, you know about. I love you to bits, mum, miss you every day, dad. And, do you know, all, all these very intimate messages. And, and I think for me, that's where true empathy comes from. Because you know what it feels like. Do you know, you're reading, you're reading someone's message in their T-shirt and you're thinking, God, that's very similar to my story. I, I know what that person maybe is going through. Um, so that peer collegiate mutuality, you know, emerges very strongly. Um, and people love it. It's such a brilliant brand and such a great organisation, and 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 to have that close association with with the people that support you is, is a real privilege and an honour in many respects. Of course, you came on board as well. Quite a, a challenging time because uh, five or six months after you you started, the, the COVID crisis came along. So, what were the challenges? in terms of steering a, a charity through that process? I wasn't expecting that. I don't think any of us were. were we? um, I mean, the charity, immediately um, we weren't able to deliver the full range of services that, that we um, normally would. Um, people who are going through their cancer treatment, often their, their immune systems are compromised. Um, so you want to protect them as much as possible and not expose them to any additional risk factors, such as infection. So COVID presented massive risks in that respect. So the whole nature of the way the hospital provided its supports, and we provide very much you know, direct delivery in the hospital, had to change. Um, fundraising was always going to be a challenge because we couldn't have these mass events that I was talking about earlier on, that you know, those were going to be compromised. But I have to say the guys, the team pulled out all the stops. Um, they, they dreamt up new initiatives for raising funds that, that we did through digital platforms um, such as this. Um, I remember we had, we had things called like the Beats and Banter, we called it, where we'd bring famous sports people every Thursday night onto your screens and, and supporters would, would pay a donation to, to sit and have a conversation with, you know, these famous sports people and, and they all did it, you know, out of the goodness of their heart um, just affording their own time. But it was brilliant because they were really intimate sessions. They were, they were great. Another one was um, the Beats and Blether where... With two or three real fantastic um, similar events, they were hosted by Kay Adams, um, right. and Kay's such a professional. She's an absolute brilliant professional, um, so she get a, the audience really engaged. And uh, I remember we tell in Fielding, you know, the author of Bridget Jones's mm-hmm. Diary, she she came on and did a an hour and a half session for us, and oh, it was just great. It was brilliant knowing that your charity has got such a reach and. Uh, and that people would give up their time voluntarily for that. Um, so fundraising was challenging, but we innovated really greatly in that respect. The service delivery side was really challenging because we were, had to compromise and adjust what we did. But um, we, we developed new services. We developed a befriending service, telephone befriending service. 
um, would provide a care and comfort packs for people who were coming into the hospital who, who couldn't have visitors or visitor access was limited. Um, our volunteer activity was, was compromised. Volunteers are right at the heart of this charity. You know, we'll probably get about 200 and odd active volunteers at any given time. Um, and and the, the, the yellow army, we call them, you know, but they, they guys were fantastic and stepping up to the plate and helping out where they could. A whole range of corporate partners were providing us with, um, you know, sanitizer or PPE kit or... You know, it was just amazing to see how people rallied round. But but right at the heart of it for us was how can we continue to do what it says in the tin? How can we continue to touch people's lives in a way that provides support through that period of uncertainty for them? So we delivered online group work programmes that are still running today. We, del we developed a lot of content for our website and through the support of, of a particular family uh, who had their own tragic experience. Uh, with cancer, they, they lost a, a daughter at a young age um, and they fundraised for the charity. They raised over £400,000 for us in, in the last few years. And so these funds helped us develop a lot of new initiatives um, and we still funded projects in the hospital. Um, the other thing I didn't mention earlier on that the charity does, it, it funds research and innovation um, projects for colleagues in the hospital and its wider environments. Um, we fund a number of specialist nursing radiographer posts so we continue to do all of those things, and I'm really proud that the I think we've come out COVID a stronger, more efficient, um, more robust organisation, more resilient. Um, tested our resolve, I have to say at times, but um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that um, almost everything is, is back up and running um, the way it was pre-COVID. Um, we do things a bit differently now. We're maybe a bit more cautious in, in our approach and making sure that we do things um, in a very well risk-managed way um, because we want to be respectful to people and, and the issues that they've been through. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the team. I couldn't, couldn't ask for more. Great. Well, that all sounds brilliant. Uh, but now, of course, we've got another crisis on our hands as well, the cost of living crisis. Yeah. Do you see that posing any problems, in you know, obviously particularly in terms of fundraising? Yeah, yeah, you can see the potential, can't you? Um, nevertheless, we started the year very well. Um, we're, we're exceeding our targets so far. Um, it remains to be seen if we can continue to stay in that trajectory over over the rest of the year. But <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yes, but people's disposable income is going to be reduced and compromised. Um, but uh, the people of Scotland, yeah, generally across the UK, they're very generous. We're a very generous nation, aren't we? Um, only last night, the the, the soccer aid show was mm. on, and, and they raised about fifteen million in, in one event. Um, you know, I think we're confident that we'll we'll reach our targets. We probably normally would bring in about five million pounds a year, and I think we could achieve that this year. But we're working with our colleagues in the NHS to try and identify some higher value, exciting new initiatives um, that can push our and challenge our fundraising targets. Um, Maybe, you know, only two weeks ago, um, we helped fund, in partnership with the NHS Endowments Organisation, we, we partly funded a new MRI um, machine, which um, was launched in open to patients only a couple of weeks ago. Um, that'll allow for much more precise um, radiotherapy planning um, and therefore better results. Um, the more precise you can be in the treatment, the less likely you are to damage healthy tissue, therefore the better outcomes for patients. Now, we're a, a charity who, who fundraised about £3.7 million, along with our NHS Endowments partners, to, 
to get that piece of kit off the ground. Now we're looking for the next exciting project um, and hopefully there's something just around the corner um, that we'll, we'll be able to talk about in the, in the next few months or so. And, and talking about the next few months, I mean, how, how about the, the next kind of two or three years? Any uh, sort of general ambitions that you have for the, mm-hmm. the, the charity? Yeah, I think still continue to mature, grow and develop where we can. I think it's all about maximising our fundraising potential, which allows us to bring the resources to maximise the impact, the positive impact we can have on people's lives. Um, there is no point in fundraising for a pound if, if you've not got a good compelling cause to fundraise for. Um, and we all know what cancer feels like, as I was saying earlier on, and, and it's such a prevalent illness in, in the country that, um, unfortunately, the, the, the need for services, the types of services that we can offer and fund, isn't going to go away fast. So I think for us it's about how we can align ourselves with the emerging priorities of, of the NHS, how we can raise funds that help add value to that and provide a degree of excellence that, that otherwise the NHS may struggle to do that. Um, so whilst their, their contributions are a small one in, in the grand scheme of things, it's one that um, can add so much value, I think, to the, the provision that, that we should all expect in the NHS. And for me, that's about the best possible diagnosis and treatment um, for cancer. Um, there's some fantastic services across Scotland, England, um, Northern Ireland and Wales for that matter. Um, but because the prevalence of cancer in Scotland is so high, there's, there's no reason why we shouldn't be the best. Um, we're up there with the best and, and we're, we're proud of the contribution that, that we can make. Um, our colleagues in the NHS are amazing. Um, Glasgow has some of the, the world's you know best professionals. You know These guys are at the top of their game. Um, they're dreaming up the next innovation in clinical trials and, and research projects. Only last week at... I was at an event where around 14 of, of early career researchers um, um, provided their uh, early research findings um, and we, we gave an award at the end of that and there were some amazing projects going on there, I have to say. Um, um, I mean, we're, we're in good hands if, if that's the calibre of professional that's emerging in the next few years. On a, a more personal note, um, mm. experience in, in life and in, in one's career often comes through kind of making mistakes, but learning from them. So I'm just intrigued. You know, if you could pick out one mistake you've made in your your career. Have you had enough time? <laughs> <laughs> one mistake. Well, kind of what, what, what did you, you know, is there one, one mistake you look back on and think that was a really valuable uh, lesson for me and I've, I've benefited from it? I, I, I have enjoyed and valued Every role that I've ever had, I would never, I wouldn't, wouldn't change my career. Uh, I think my early career provided a strong platform for what, what came afterwards. Um, I, I think, if anything, maybe in terms of the, I think there is more potential for stronger collaborations across every sector. Um, I think, unfortunately, sometimes when you're chasing resources, the, the world can become much more competitive than it needs to be. Um, and I think you get more bang for your buck and better outcomes when you pool resources and work in, um, in partnership with others because we all want the same thing. So whether it's a mistake or a lesson learned, I'm certainly a lesson learned, not so sure about a mistake, but if anything, I think finding those nuggets or those opportunities that come along where you can create real, powerful, impactful and lasting change can happen best, in my opinion, um, when when you work with the full sort of supply chain, you know, when you work with everybody that's involved, and, and I think there's there's always room for improvement there. 
great. And uh, if you could give one piece of advice to the young Martin Cooley as he was setting off into the world, what would it be? Well, I don't know. Um, I, I think be respectful of the issue that you're working on. Always, always have that in, at the forefront of your thoughts. Um, um, treat it with the dignity that it respects. Um, and when you do that, I think you can shape cultures and behaviours in an organisation that, that reflect all of that. All organisations are, are groups of people that come together for a common purpose, really, just to do the same thing. And the more people that believe in that, strongly believe in that, then, in my opinion, the better you're going to do that and the better results you're going to achieve. So so I think if there's a bit of advice, it's, it's uh, stay committed to those values um, and use them very much as your driving force to help you make the right decisions along the way, because they're always they're always compromised to a greater or less degree at some point. But stick strongly to your values, and, and you come out at the end all right. I would have thought. Brilliant. Okay, we're going to finish now with five quick questions. Are you ready? Cool. Uh, I believe you're a big sports fan. Uh, so, no, if you could have represented your country at one competitive sport, what would it have been? Oh, easy football. It's got to be football. Football's my that's my sport. Um, played amateur football most of my. Most of my adult life, I only start, stopped playing five sides about five or six years ago, actually. But I'd still play it today if it wasn't for my knees. But however, <laughs> well, you, you might get a call up for the Armenian match the way things are going. <laughs> I know. Oh, their form is topsy turvy at the moment, I have to say. It's typical Scotland, they build you up and then let That's you right. down a wee bit. But football, yeah, because I love the game. Great. What's the first record you ever bought? I'm not sure, actually. Uh, Mm, I think Boston, the album Boston by the mm. band Boston. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that might have been the first. Quite, quite, quite a mature, sort of adult orientated rock. The scene, it was, I, well, I went to see them in, uh, live, actually. So, and I'll tell you who else I loved. I love Bruce Springsteen. I still love Bruce Springsteen, right. but I went yeah. to see him when I was about 17 in Edinburgh Players. And it still would be up there with one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. What's your favourite place in the world? I guess my roots are at home, you know, so that's got to be up there. Um, I love Mallorca, holiday in Mallorca. I think it's a beautiful island. Um, I've been to Canada a few times, um, and I have to say I really like the feel of Canada. I like the sort of culture. Mm-hmm. I like the people. Um, but I don't think I'm a, I'd stay at home. I'm a bit of a homeboy in that respect. I love travelling, but I know I can always come back again. Kirk and Tiller has obviously got a big a big attraction there. Well, I need um, a passport to get out of Kirk and Tiller. What's for dinner tonight? Oh, God. <laughs> it's undecided, but it'll most likely... Let's, let's say that you've suddenly told at the last minute you've got to, you've got to cook something. Uh, what's he going to throw together in the kitchen? Well, that'll be very simple then. If it's me that's cooking it, it'll be a baked potato with cheese, a bit of salad, maybe a bit of quiche that you buy out of Marks and Spencer's or Tesco's. <laughs> Sounds all right to me for a Monday night. Uh, and finally, what does your perfect weekend look like? Um, yeah, like chilling, like relaxing, uh, go to watch football uh, with my dad, um, spending time with my friends and families, always important. It's a nice um, time on Saturday with friends that come round to the house. Um, but aye, those types of things. Do you know, do not out and about too much these days. Uh, like just spend time with family and friends out for a nice meal, a couple of beers and glass of wine. I'll be it. Well, Martin Cawley, thanks very much. It's been brilliant to, to hear about your, your career today. 
Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode soon. Bye for now. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.